0: So what are your thoughts on taking tests? In general, do we, I see some college heads shaking. Uh, Is there anybody who would say, yeah, I actually like taking tests? (laughs) Of course, Ed. (laughs) Um, Yeah, in general, I think most of us don't. So I hope that I don't um, cause any post-traumatic stress with what I'm going to, Share with you guys. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you got to get your number two pencils ready. I don't know what a number one pencil is. Maybe somebody can give me a history lesson afterwards, but it has to be number two for these tests. I know that. Um, And you got to get your, you know, your Scantron form. Obviously, this person wasn't having a good time taking their test. Maybe a little too much pressure on the pencil there. Um, And then, you know, you got to fill in the bubble exactly right and you got to practice it a few times first. And heaven forbid, do not fill two of the same bubbles in on the same question because that'll cause an issue for you. And then there's, you know, the the dreaded blue book exam. The, uh, I don't know if anybody really likes to take um, who doesn't love an impromptu essay test <coughs> um, in a very short period of time. So, yeah, in general, I think most of us don't like taking tests. Tests really... If you prepare for them, they're never as bad as they seem. You know, leading up to them. When you're actually, if you've prepared and you know the material, and the test comes, yeah, you, you, it's not a comfortable experience. But generally, um, most people do, you know, do pretty well as long as they prepare for the test. Um, and so we're—it's uh, been a while, but the last time I spoke, I spoke on First John chapter one, and in there we talked about. Um, some of the theme of 1 John that we're going to be developing as I have opportunity to speak. And a lot of people don't like 1 John because it kind of puts us to a test. It's uh, John, as he writes through 1 John, uses a lot of black and white terminology. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about love and hate. And there's really no middle ground as John develops it throughout 1 John. And so, a lot of times we get kind of anxious reading First John, and sometimes people won't even even read First John. I know that you know when I was in college, uh, I had to uh, translate it for a a class, and some of that can be you know when you're dwelling on and you're working on one word at a time. Some of that can some of the Things that he says in here, this is how you live. And if you, if you say that you love God, then you gotta love people. And it's very in your face in, in a way. And, uh, you know, it can be kind of difficult to work through. But I don't think that John wrote 1st John to cause anxiety. I don't think John wrote 1st John to make people feel ashamed and to beat up on themselves. The purpose of 1st John is to encourage us. It's the idea here of confirming our eternal fellowship in Christ, both our fellowship with the Lord and our fellowship with one another, that we are actually continuing on in the faith, that we are actually staying to the center of the road. And some people like to you know, take their Christian faith and see how close they can get to the edge as they work along the path. John is saying, no, this is, this is center of the path. This is what it looks like to walk the center of the path in the Christian faith. And you shouldn't be working towards the edge on either side. You shouldn't see how far away you can get from the center of the path while still being kind of on the path. John is concerned with staying center of the path, following wholeheartedly after Christ, following his example. And so as we get into... 1 John chapter 2, these first 11 verses, we're going to see the test of our fellowship in Christ. And this isn't one that we should be anxious about. This isn't one that should cause us to freak out like a Scantron exam. We should be able to have confidence when we come to take this test. And so if you're not there now, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're we'll starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 11. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is what John writes. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness because is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes let's pray father thank you for this passage God, I pray that as we dig into it today that we would be encouraged in our faith in You and our fellowship in You and our fellowship with one another. God, I pray that we would not live lives of fear and anxiety and shame, but through passages like this, we can see that we can have confidence before You knowing that we are in the faith, knowing that we are in the fellowship. We thank You for that, God. We thank You that we have a sure salvation. We have a sure faith and that you clearly mark out for us what it looks like to live the life of the believer. So God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So first here, we see the advocate of our fellowship. We, right from the get-go, he says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. So, um, just before this, at the end of chapter 1, we see... John saying that um, if anyone confesses their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we know that when we confess to the Lord, He is faithful. He is going to forgive us. He is going to cleanse us. And so he continues on that vein of thought, and he says, I'm writing you these things so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we see here that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. In the event that we do sin, we have this advocate to speak out on our behalf. Um, I really appreciate the way the writer of Hebrews delves into it in talking about Jesus as our high priest, representing us to the Father. If we look at Hebrews 4, 15-18, this is what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So Jesus was made like us. And so he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been through what we've been through. He's dealt with, What this world is like, and he overcame it in a way that, in our own power, we never could. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter seven to say, the former priest. So he's comparing him, comparing Jesus to the Levitical priesthood, and he's saying those former priests, the Levitical priests, um, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So they, in Jesus, is life. So even though He died, He rose from the dead and He conquered death. And so He continues on in His priesthood. Just because He died here on earth doesn't mean that He stopped being a priest in the way that the Levitical priests stopped being priests when they passed away. It says, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus prays for you continually. You know, we look at John 17 and we see Jesus praying for Himself and His relationship with His Father and praying for His disciples and that they would be one with Him as He is one with the Father. And then we see Him praying for all of us who would come to faith through the ministry of the disciples. That's us in John 17 that He prays for then. But Jesus didn't just pray for us in the past. He didn't just carry us before His Father in the past. He carries us before His Father now. He makes prayers for us now. He intercedes on our behalf now. And so, yes, John is writing this, that we would not sin. First, John is, there's guidance in here, there's encouragement in here not to sin. But when we do and we will, when we fail, when we mess up, we can have confidence that Jesus prays on our behalf. That He goes before the Father as a defense lawyer because you know that Satan is accusing us. You know that Satan and his demons are love to see us fall, and Satan loves to go before God and say, are they really yours? Did you see how they messed up there? Did you see how that guy destroyed his marriage? You see what that guy just said to his child? You see that gossip that's going on over there in that church? And Jesus is our advocate, and he goes before the Father in our defense, and I I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't, I'm not privy to the conversations between the Father and the Son. But based on what I see in Scripture, I imagine that what Jesus says goes basically like this. I know that they mess up. I know that they do stupid things. I know that they sin. But they're mine. And I gave them my righteousness. So when you look at them, see me. Because I died for them and I lived for them and I live now for them, and I make intercession for them. So Jesus prays for us. And He makes a defense for, on, on the basis not of our righteousness, not on the good that we do, but on the basis of His own righteousness that He imparted to us. And not just that, we see here that He is the propitiation for our sins. That's got to be like a 5 or $10 word if I've ever heard one. Um, but the idea here, propitiation, is that Jesus is the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. That he didn't just cover our sins, but that he took them wholly upon himself. This is a completely unique kind of sacrifice. Because the, the, the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament could cover sins. Atonement, the idea of covering over sins. But Jesus isn't just the atonement for our sins for a temporary period of time. He took them wholly on Himself and completely obliterated them. And so He satisfied the wrath of the Father against sin for those who believe in Him. And so we can have confidence despite sin. The Lord doesn't desire for us to live in shame. We can have confidence before Him in light of the test that we're about to look at in the next group of verses. because Not because of anything that we do, but because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus continues to do for us. And so even when, when we are prone to have shame, to have fear, to beat up, beat up on ourselves, to, to look in the mirror and struggle to even look ourselves in the eyes, because we, we know just how desperately wicked we are? Jesus paid for that. And not in part, but the whole. And so we don't have to do extra penance. When we try to punish ourselves for the sins that we've committed, in effect, what we're saying is that the... the grace of jesus the free gift of jesus the death of jesus isn't good enough to pay for our sins that's, that's not how we conquer the flesh by beating up on ourselves paul says that the discipline is good for some things but it, but it has no power to defeat the flesh shame is not the way <laughs> Self-loathing is not the way. Jesus' sacrifice is good enough not just to save us, but to sanctify us and to purify us. We do have a personal responsibility to change, though. We can't just continue in the same ruts. We have to get out of the ruts, and we have to get on this path that John's laying out for us in 1 John. We're called to seek wholeheartedly after Jesus. We're called to love the Lord our God called to live in obedience to him. And so John is writing these things so that we wouldn't sin. And I remember, unfortunately, this really isn't too, too long ago, but if you talk to me, you'll find out pretty quickly that I'm, I, lo- I love talking about the sovereignty of God in all areas I, um, and everything that that entails. And you could probably stereotype me based on that statement alone um, in my theological position. Um, and so in the midst of that, I became convinced of a falsehood. And that falsehood was I would come before the Lord and I would pray to Him and I would say, Father, I have no power to change myself. I, I, I can't do it. And so if I'm going to change in this area, You've got to do it for me. You've got to change me. The problem with that is I've now blamed God for my, my sin. I've, I've blamed God for my rut. Because I'm saying, God, I can't do it. So it's got to be you. This is all on you. And so if I keep sinning, that's because you didn't change me. And that's, that's not true. Because the Father did give us the power to conquer sin. When He sent Jesus for us. And when He sent His Spirit to dwell in us. And... That's absolutely crucial for us because we can't end up in a situation like that where we say, oh, God's God's so sovereign that I I have no say. So if I'm going to change, that's got to be a God thing. It can't be a, a, a me thing. Because if you have Jesus in your life, you are empowered. And the Lord desires obedience from us. It's not obedience from Himself in our place. The Lord desires, through the power of His Son, through the power of His Spirit, for us to obey Him. And so, as we do that, as we trudge along this path, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall. And in the grace of God, He'll he'll pick us up again, and He'll write us, but He desires for us to take the steps. He's not going to take the steps for us. And so there, there is this test for our faith, and we know up front that we have this advocate. And as we walk along this path, as we seek to follow after Him, that Jesus is going to speak in our defense every step of the way. But we're called to walk in it. And we're we're called to this test. And this is what it is. Verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we're called to obey. We're called to obey these commandments. And so the test for the believer, this test that we're taking, obviously it's not on a Scantron, it's not in a blue book, we can't write an essay for it. It's to obey the commands of Jesus. It's to follow his word. And it even says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus set the example for us. He paved the way and he empowers us to do it. But we are called to walk in the way that he walked. And so when we, when we call ourselves a believer, when we call ourselves a child of God, this is the expectation that we, that we look like our Father. <laughs> you know, just like I expect Roland to look like me in some way, and so far he still has blue eyes. We'll see if that <laughs> changes. Um, the Father expects us to look like him. If he's our Father, we should bear some resemblance. And just like the disciples in Acts, based on the way they're living, based on the way they're speaking, people look at them and they say, We know that you've been with Jesus. That's what people should see when they look at us. They should see the resemblance of our Father in heaven. We walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And James, uh, this is a passage that you know causes a lot of strife for some people, but um, James puts it this way. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So the the faith that we have in Jesus isn't just to say, I believe that Jesus did these things. I believe that Jesus came. I believe that Jesus died. I believe that he rose from the dead, and I believe that he reigns forever. It's to say I believe in Him and I trust in Him and I know that there is no other entity, person, perspective that gives clarity to this mess that we live in and that gives a way to earn any merit unto myself. Our faith in Jesus is... to to say that we have no sufficiency of ourselves. And we can't find another philosophy or theology or pantheon or any perspective or worldview that gains us any merit or favor. And so, if we believe in Jesus to that extent... That there is no other means by which we may be saved but Jesus. But then we continue to live as though we're just the, the trappings and the desserts and the, all the things that the world has to offer are good and valuable and fruitful, and that we, we take them into our lives and we, we try to say that we have Jesus and we have those things. It does not make sense, they are not compatible. We are called to live like him because when we when we confess him, we we say there's there's no other way. I have no power to save myself. There's no other way to salvation but through Jesus. But then we add all these other things back into our lives after the fact, and we you know we we like to say, oh okay, I, I got Jesus, I'm good. No, the, our faith is is called to be a deeper faith than that, one that doesn't just change what we say we believe, but changes everything that we say and everything that we believe and everything that we do. This faith faith is absolutely transformative. And so it follows suit. The walking the center of the path, the following wholeheartedly after Jesus, the, the calling yourself a child of God, calling yourself a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, that you would walk in His footsteps. And so the natural question is, what is this command? And John doesn't leave us hanging. It's very clear how John lays this out in 1 John. And so we'll actually go right on and we'll look at the command right now. What are the commands of our fellowship in Christ? It says in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you, that you had heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. He's kind of playing on this idea here of this old and new commandment. And it is such because it's a commandment that Israel had had from the beginning, since the time of Moses. But then Jesus reaffirms it and kind of puts a, a, a different spin on it because he became the new standard for it. And this new commandment that we see here is love. Obviously love first for God but then love for one another. And so when, when Jesus was being tested by the religious leaders, they came to him and said, you know, out of all the, the commandments in, in the, the law, what is the greatest? You know, trying to trip him up. Because there's like a thousand. And so, of that thousand, which one's the greatest? Which one's the very best one, Jesus? And so Jesus sums up the whole law and says, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? And the second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. And so, and the, the, you know, they're flabbergasted, and the leader says, you know, "You've you've said rightly." And so, it's an old commandment in that sense, but this is this actually is very similar to what Jesus said in John thirteen. And so, what Jesus shared in John thirteen verses thirty four and thirty five is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, Just you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So here Jesus says, A new commandment that I give to you, love one another. Why is this a new commandment if Jesus had already been tested, and he points to the law, he points to the Old Testament. Well, what does Jesus add to this? He doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He sets a new standard. And so this is, John obviously was very front row and center to Jesus' conversations, and he heard these things, and John clearly is reflecting on these things, and obviously John wrote the Gospel of John. And so he's, as John shares in First John, you can see very similar language to what we see here. And what I draw from that is that it's never been any different. The Lord has always desired for us to love Him with everything that we got. And that's not just going to be an up-down relationship. And I, I live an isolated life by myself, and I got God and I'm good. That was never the Lord's desire. And if that's what our lives look like, we are not fulfilling the command of Jesus. If you got God and you're good, you're not good. Love one another as I have loved you. And that's the test. The test here is not if we love God. We show that we love God by having love for one another. That's the test. That's the command. Love for one another. And so he brings it back to this contrast that he brought up in chapter 1 of light and darkness. And so he, he adds an extra layer to it and he, he puts love for one another as living in the light. So if, you, if you're truly living in the light of Jesus Christ, and you, you've repented and you've turned from your sin and you're walking in the way of everlasting, and you're following after Jesus and you're walking in His footsteps, you better have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You better have love for one another. Because otherwise, you're not walking in the light. And there's, there's not another option. It's The way that John puts it forth is either you're loving one another and you're in the light, or you're hating one another and you're in the darkness. And so if you, if you say that you love God, but all that we have for one another is hatred or bitterness or gossip or slander or malice or wrath, do we really love God? Because John ties those things together. That if you have love for, if you have love for the Lord, we're going to have love for one another. But there's confidence there because we already said we're going to mess up. We're not going to get this right all the time. Am I going to have roots of bitterness that try to spring up in my heart? Are there going to be times where I, somebody does something and I just want to bash them to somebody else? Yeah, Th- this, this whole passage here is prefaced with the idea that we will mess up and we will sin. And so when we stumble and when we fall along this path, we have an advocate who goes before the Father and He prays for us so that we don't have to be ashamed, so that we don't have to run and hide and try to clothe ourselves with the closest thing that we can hide, find to hide from the Lord. We can have confidence that even when we fail, even when we fall, even when we mess up, we can come before the Lord knowing that His Spirit lives inside of us, knowing that His Son makes intercession for us, and we can confess our sins before the Lord, and we can have full confidence that He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from every impurity. The the idea here is that we would continue on, that we would work towards not sinning. John writes these things so that we wouldn't sin. And so that, that tells us that there's hope. And that's what's so encouraging about this, is we're not doomed to make the same mistakes and failures over and over and over again. The Lord expects and provides and gives us grace to mature in our faith and to grow up and not just stumble as a child, but that we could grow in the the dexterity and the balance to continue on in our faith, to walk, to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And so this is what life at the center of the path looks like following after Jesus, is living a life characterized by love. Love for the Father and love for one another. And so if, if we want to know, if we want to see if we pass the test, we got to look at ourselves and see, how, how are we loving one another? And, and I've shared this with some of you, but something that I've been dwelling on lately, something that's been in my mind as I am relatively newly married and um, definitely a new father, and knowing that the Lord calls me to love my wife and to love my child. I've I've been dealing with, so often we hear people say things like, I love you so much. And it made me think of high school relationships and (laughs) that's the kind of terminology that, you know, well, I love you so, so much. I love you more. I love you the most. No, I love you the mostest. And so we just completely obliterate the English language to tell people how much quantity of love we have for one another. But that's such an immature way of thinking about love. The Lord, the Scriptures, I don't, I don't see a lot of talk about how much love to have. The scriptures talk about equality. It's a it's, it's a very different approach to love. It's not have a lot of love. It's ha- love well. And so the, qu- the question that I've been challenging myself is not how much do I love my wife because I love her a lot, but sometimes I don't listen very well. And sometimes I am impatient with her and sometimes I snap at her. And I can have a lot of love, but... It's I'm not doing it very well in those moments, so I'm questioning myself. I'm saying, Dylan, how well do you love your wife? How well do you love your son? And there's times where I have to come before her as, I, you know, as I'm thinking about these things, and I say, I'm not loving you very well today, am I? And she's you know, honest and also gracious with me, so she just shakes her head no. <laughs> um, and I think that we should challenge ourselves as well. Not to have this immature view of I love love you so much. Because people say I love you so much and they cheat on their wives and they abuse their children. And so having a lot of love doesn't cut it. The scripture gives us a very clear idea of what it looks like to love each other well. And that's what Jesus laid out for us. And I see no better picture than the night that he was crucified. That he started the night by washing his disciples' feet in the minuscule things, in the minor things, in the the minutia. He loved his disciples well and then at the end of that night he goes to the cross and in the most magnanimous expression of love that we have ever seen, he dies for the sins of the whole world. Jesus loved well in the little things and in the big things. And so we also are to love well All along the way, knowing that we're going to stumble, knowing that we're going to fall, knowing that we're going to mess up, knowing that Jesus is there for us, that He is our High Priest, that He represents us before our Father, that He sympathizes with every weakness that we have. And then He says, I know they do stupid things. I know they mess up and I know they sin, but they're mine and I love them and they have my righteousness. We continue, we walk on in his footsteps. So earlier we talked about this idea of taking tests, and I'm like Ed, I actually really enjoy taking tests. Not true or false, there's just too many trick questions there, but I love multiple choice tests. Um, The process of elimination is invigorating for me for some reason. (laughs) Um, My wife's a counselor, she'll help me. Um, So, one kind of test, and this is a little bit of a different approach uh, to testing that I don't enjoy, and I, I definitely didn't when I first became an adult, I've kind of matured and grown up a little bit, but when I first started applying for jobs, there's like the, the background check thing that goes out, and then you have to fill in that, you know, that question of, have you ever committed a felony, or have you ever been convicted of a felony or whatever, and I would pause and think about that, like as though I didn't know if I had committed a felony or not, <laughs> um, and I, I haven't. And I knew every time that I, (laughs) um, every time that I did those background checks, that I had no criminal record whatsoever. Um, You know, in terms, you know, like on the books, most of us are clean as a whistle. And so um, I, I I knew that nothing was going to come back. But I would still end up feeling anxious and like worried about it. And then you get it back, and it just says no record exists at all, which is kind of. Depressing. I want them to have some record of the good I've done or something. It's like, um, you know, they only keep record of the bad things that you do, I guess. Um, but I think that, and I've talked to other people, and they're like, yeah, I, I feel that way too. And I've, n- I've never done anything. I've like hardly ever even gotten pulled over by the, by the cops. And I still feel nervous or anxious about these background checks. And I think a lot of that is because we all have this shame reflex. Because we know. We know how, the wicked thoughts of our hearts. We know the, you know the intentions that we've had. We know how we've manipulated people. We know how we've told lies. You know, how we've been, you know, slovenly, you know, the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so, we worry and we, ha- we have this shame reflex and this guilt reflex that, you know, when somebody starts digging into our lives, that they might find out something about us. But when we... Look at Scripture. We see that when we expose things to the light, when we come to Jesus, when we confess to Him, they have no power over us anymore. Yeah, there's consequences for what we do. Rightfully so. Our God is a just God, and so we should have a just system for disciplining and punishing people when they do wicked things. But when we confess everything before the Lord, we can have confidence Just like we can have confidence for a test that we prepare for, we can have confidence. No, that He forgives us, that He loves us, that He accepts us. He doesn't turn us away. So when when those times come of, of shame and guilt, and we're just heaping it on ourselves, we can have confidence in the defense and righteousness of our, or for all intents and purposes, our attorney our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ. And we can say, thank goodness my righteousness doesn't come from me because I don't got it. But I know that it comes from Jesus, and He does. And so all these things that I'm beating myself up for are things that He's already fulfilled. And rather than trying to rely on my own strength, I can rely on Him and I can turn to Him. And have full confidence when we come before Him to take this test, knowing that He has is, is already done it all. He set the example. He's paved the way. He's given us the grace to walk in love before Him. And so when we take this test, we don't have to feel shame and guilt and beat up on ourselves. We can have full confidence... that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And we we can know that we don't have to own any other name than that because there is no higher name. And that we can pass this test walking in love for one another and that we can love one another well and deeply. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank You so much for the opportunity we have to come together God, I pray for this church. I pray that we be a church that's known for our love for one another all the more. God, I thank you that this church is a church that's known for that. I thank you that this church has a reputation with each other and with the community of living out this command to have love for you and to have love for one another. And God, so I, I convict us to do it all the more. Encourage us, spur us on to do it even more deeply, to Love each other even more well. God, I thank you that this is a church that longs after you, that seeks after you, that follows in your footsteps. God, I pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as we stumble along this path. God, help us when we do fall, when we do fail, to run back to you and not run from you, to turn to you, to repent of our failings, repent of our sin, and to accept Your forgiveness and to walk in the new life that You've given us. God, help us not to live as though we're dead, but to live the vibrant, abundant life that You've called us to, that You've given us through Your Son. We thank You for Jesus and all that He's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.